Good morning, church. Wow, sending uh, the, the kids to children's church like took out half of our congregation this morning. But that's a good problem to have. That shows that we have a lot of, of uh, young people growing up in the Word of the Lord, and that's really exciting. Um, in fact, one of, of my little ones, Mary Catherine, uh, she's in preschool now and uh, recently had a field trip, actually two field trips. She got to meet the Rob Fowler of TV2 uh, um, weather fame, and he's like a local celebrity. But uh, when, when she started having these field trips with her preschool, it made me start having flashbacks of field trips when I was in school. And and, and honestly, field trips were the greatest day because you were going to school, but you weren't really going to school, you know? But the more I thought about these, these field trips that I went on, there was almost like this PTSD of the field trip speech. You know, we're going somewhere, and you're not just going as yourself. You're representing our school and our county and all this stuff. And, and I, my senior year of high school, we actually had a field trip to Washington, D.C., and it, it was an even greater thing where, all right, you're representing our school, but you are representing our state, and like, uh, wow, the state of South Carolina depends on how I behave in D.C., and that's a terrifying thought for a high school senior, but then when I was in youth group, that speech is even worse because then you're not just representing like where you're coming from from your church, but then there's the added like almost guilt trip of, you are representing Jesus everywhere we go. And like, oh my goodness, Arby's is, they're, they're, the salvation of the Arby's staff depends on how I behave when I grab lunch. But, it, but there's that, that pressure of, you're not just going as yourself, but you are a representative of the group that you were going with. And I must admit that when I became a youth pastor, I used that same speech because it kind of it, it increases the expectation that we're not just going to go and be ridiculous, which that was an aspect of it, just the fun of going somewhere together, but that raised expectation of when we're going, we are going bearing the name of Christ in this place. And so someone will see your behavior and they will either say, that's the way... Christians should behave and carry themselves, or they'll say, I can't believe that person calls themselves a Christian. And so there's just that expectation of when you go somewhere, especially as part of a group, that you are a, a representative. And, but then I started thinking about that whole field trip speech, and I've gotten out of the habit of, of remembering that and I want, I want you to think about your own life. Do you think about that aspect when you are going somewhere in public? That you are going as a representative. Whenever you go grocery shopping, do you remember, oh yeah, I'm bearing the name of Christ. When you go to school or to work, do you remember, oh yeah, I'm not just going as myself, I am going as someone who is publicly claiming the name of Christ. And for those of you that drive, even more pressing, when you drive, do you remember that you are bearing the name of Christ? You might not have the little Jesus fish sticker on your car, but still, when you are making your morning commute, are you 
carrying yourself in such a way that you are remembering that you are a representative of Jesus. And so in a sense that whenever you're getting ready to walk out that door, you almost have to give yourself that representative speech of, oh yeah, I'm not just going as myself, I'm going as someone who's claiming the name of Jesus. And that's what this passage in Ephesians is doing. That's what Paul is is talking about, is that he's saying people are watching because they know that you are a representative of Jesus. And this doesn't just apply to the church then, it applies to the church today, especially in the culture that we live in here in the South, where there's this cultural expectation of Christianity that, well, just because you grew up in the church, that naturally assumes that you must be a Christian. And so people watch the way that you behave and carry yourself. But even more than that, there's this age of postmodern Gnosticism, that in the search of truth, that there's this common thought that, well, whatever you believe is true. As long, if it's true for you, then that is truth. And so people are watching, especially those of us who bear the name of Christ, and they're saying, you claim that this is true. Does the life that you live match up with what you are saying? And so when we read Ephesians 5, I truly believe that Paul is making the argument that every Christian should live a life that reflects the holiness of God. And I know that puts a lot of pressure on you, and it could even be, uh, there's a tendency to want to take that and even take it to a step of legalism that you better watch yourself because God is watching. But that's not what Paul is saying here. He's saying that the very life you live should just naturally be a reflection of the holiness that God has poured into you. Because it's not just enough to say that you're a Christian. It's not just about memorizing the, the fluffy uh, scriptures that, that you, you might have posted next to your desk that give you that feel-good moment in the day. Uh, it's not just enough to have the, the, what is it, the live, laugh, love like wall plaque uh, next to your door or whatever, which is, is cute, but uh, faith has to be more than just a three-word wall plaque that you can get at Hobby Lobby. It's not just wearing the, the Christian t-shirts that take the, uh, the, the popular slogans and then make them Jesus. Uh, like I think I mentioned before, the, the one that annoyed me the most was the Abercrombie and Fitch one that they changed it to say a breadcrumb and fish. Like that, it, it might look cute, but your faith has to be more than just a somewhat clever Christian t-shirt. And so there's the challenge of does the action of your life match up to what you claim to believe? And so Paul is showing us in this passage three ways to check your actions. First, in verses 1 through 2, to be an imitator. Be an imitator. Secondly, in verses 3 through 14, do not be impure. So be an imitator, do not be impure. And finally, in verses 15 through 20, be intentional. Before we go any further, let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time this morning that we can come together. That we can come 
as a way of just saying thank you for what you have done for us. That we can come and we can sing praises. That we can sing these, these songs of adoration. That we can come and sit in your word. And God, we ask that in this time now that you would speak truth to us through your word. That your spirit would be present with us. That God, this would not just be me giving a speech or a performance, that this would not just be my thoughts and musings, but God, that your very word would speak through me to speak life-changing truth into the body of our church. Speak to us now. Be here with us and captivate our hearts for the gospel. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Now, we've actually been out of Ephesians for a couple weeks, just going through Holy Week, Palm Sunday, Easter, and all of that. So just to give a, a quick recap, so that way we know where we are in Ephesians, uh, Paul is actually on house arrest when he's writing this. And so uh, he, he's contained to a home and writing this, church to the, uh, writing this letter to the church in Ephesus to encourage them in their own faith. Um, not out of correction, like the, the letter to the Corinthian church, uh, not addressing, I've heard these things that you're doing, you guys need to kind of straighten up, but he's writing this as an encouragement to say, you guys have heard the gospel, let me continue to encourage you as you are growing. And he's been writing about this new life in Christ and how what Jesus has done for his people should reflect in a Christian's life and actually should build the people toward unity. Unity between the, the Jews and the Gentiles. Unity between the brothers and sisters within the local and global church. And chapter 4 ends with Paul saying, with the ch- or challenging them with uh, forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. That that is uh, the, the constant reminder and even the standard of forgiveness to forgive others as you have been forgiven. And so in light of what Christ has done on your behalf, he's saying that you should be an imitator. Look at verse 1 of chapter 5. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. This is just something that children naturally do is they naturally imitate their parents. They pick up mannerisms and characteristics and things like that. Actually, just now thinking, I, I realize that a lot of times when I'm teaching or preaching, I'm very animated with my hands. And so I have a feeling that like, as my kids grow up, that they're going to be doing stuff like this a lot when they talk. Um, but that's just something that kids pick up things because they imitate their parents. Uh, even thinking, uh, it. A common occurrence in our home is we'll see Jeremiah, our three-year-old, walking around the house with mommy or daddy's shoes because it's cute to, to imitate mommy and daddy, to take the things that he knows belong to them and pretend to be mommy or daddy. It's something that children naturally do. And kids pick up the things that their parents are passionate about. Full disclosure, we are not a sporty family. I don't know if that's been uh, apparent or not, as I refer to it, the sports ball. But that, that's just not who we are. But you know what my kids can tell you? 
They might not be, to- be able to tell you about the, the starting roster on whatever local sports team, but they can give you Peter Parker's full backstory and how he got his powers as Spider-Man. They can give you the lineup of the Avengers and who everybody is on that team. And uh, especially right now, uh, Isaac is really into Star Wars, and he can tell you all about the Star Wars lore and history and how all of these characters are connected this way and that because they pick up on the things that their parents are passionate about. And in a much greater way, Paul is saying, imitate God as a child. Pick up the things that he is passionate about. Imitate. Be imitators of God as beloved children. And so to imitate God, you actually have to examine the Scriptures. And if we're going to imitate and pick up the things that God is passionate about, we need to know the things that, are, that He is passionate about. And so you look throughout Scriptures, and especially you go back to the Old Testament. I know everyone loves to go back to the book of Leviticus because it's so exciting. It's not actually. It's a bunch of laws and mandates on how believers are God's people are meant to conduct and carry themselves, but a repeated theme throughout the book of Leviticus is God saying, be holy because I am holy. Be holy for I, Yahweh your God, am holy. Reminding them not just of His covenant name that He has given to them, that He he is Yahweh, the great I Am, But he's even saying, I am holy, and you are my people, therefore you should be holy too. In the New Testament, you look at Peter's letter to the church in 1 Peter chapter 1, and Peter says, it is written, be holy, for I am holy. When Paul is encouraging his people, not his people, but God's people, to be imitators of God, he's reminding them that God is passionate about holiness and purity and righteousness. God is very passionate about those things for himself and for his people. And so Paul is saying, imitate that. How do you imitate that? We look at verse 2. Walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Walk in love as Christ loved you. That Jesus is the model to follow. This past week we had uh, our session meeting, our monthly session meeting, and it was actually a a joint meeting. Uh, We had uh, deacons and elders together and uh, but one of the, the really, one of the things that stirred my heart really was the, uh, the devotion that Billy gave before we got into the, the meeting itself. Uh, I think Billy and I kind of have some similar nerdy type interests. We were like discussing the app where you, I had mentioned the app that you can look at the International Space Station and watch the, the Earth, a live video from the space station itself. We're like, we're, those kind of things excite us. Um, but he was discussing uh, the word prototype, that Jesus is the prototype of believers. And 
not just uh, in the sense of like uh, that the the first uh, opportunity or whatever, but that Jesus as the prototype is the design in which all others are to follow. That Jesus is the prototype of love and humility and sacrifice. And it is with Jesus as a prototype that He sets the standard of how to love. Not just the people that like Him, but the people that are against Him. And so when you are called to love as Jesus loved you, that involves giving yourself up. And Paul describes that as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, that the very act of humility and self-sacrifice becomes a pleasing aroma before the throne of God. And I've heard people argue, well, what what does it technically mean to love your neighbor? Or even just the excuse of, well, it's, it's hard to love my neighbor. Well, yes, it's hard to turn down your own self-interests and, and to deny your own self-preservation, uh, in a sense, to look out for and to care for the nourishment and betterment of others. And C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, gives this advice. He says, do not waste time bothering whether you love your neighbor. Act as if you did. As soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you are behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. In a crude definition, he's kind of saying fake it until you make it. That was my motto to survive college. Pretend that you know what you're doing and and it will catch up to you. And I know that's a very crude definition of that, but that's what C.S. Lewis is is arguing in in that passage is do not worry uh, if you actually are doing it or not. Pretend to do it and the heart will catch up to your action. I've heard it said before that if you want to begin a habit that it takes at least 21 days of repeatedly doing the same thing over and over again to actually create the habit. And I know that there are some people that argue just the the exact number of that, but the point is the same, that repetition leads to consistency. If you want to actually love your neighbor, it has to be more than a service project one day a month. It has to be more than just saying, well, I will pray for you, and then just walking away. According to Lewis, do it repeatedly, do it enough to where it becomes a habit, and that habit becomes natural action. And so I have to ask you, in this day, in 2019, in North Charleston, South Carolina, what does it mean to love your neighbor? Not just the people that are nice to you or the people that you like, but your neighbor, the the unknown people around you, or even the people that you feel might be against you. Or even in this day and age where it's so easy to stay connected with people that don't even live in the same state as us anymore, 
how many people actually know who their literal physical neighbor is? How often do you actually go outside and talk to the people that live in the home directly next to you or across the street? How are you sharing the love of Christ with your neighbor? What would it look like as a church if we got to know our neighbors in the Park Circle area, in the greater North Charleston area? How, as a church, could we love them as Jesus first loved us? How do you imitate God in your everyday life? Or perhaps even a more pointed question, do you imitate God in your everyday life? And then at this point, Paul expands the definition of imitating God's holiness by giving a negative command of saying, do not be impure. Throughout, God, or throughout Scripture, God's character is defined with holiness and righteousness and justice and goodness and purity. And so if you are to imitate God, these next verses give a definition of what to avoid. Paul says, but sexual immorality and all impurity and covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead, let there be thanksgiving. That this impurity is an uncleanness of intentional seeking what is not clean, pure, good, and nourishing. Avoid covetousness. Avoid the greed of always wanting more or wanting what others have and focusing on what you do not have. Avoid filthiness and foolish talk and crude joking, but instead, focus on thanksgiving. And I don't know about you, but I read that, and that strikes to the core of my heart. Because it's natural, not that I'm sitting around telling dirty jokes all the day, but even just to the the jokes that you might hear on on TV or on a movie, uh, just the natural sharing of those with others, and sometimes you're like, probably shouldn't have said that. If you've ever had the thought, I should not say this in mixed company, you have to ask the question, should I even be saying it in the first place? I have to... in confession of my own struggle with sin, one of our favorite shows is The Office. And Michael character has a or Michael character. Michael Scott has a phrase that he often repeats that uh, to take a, a phrase that's said in an everyday context, and then he says something that makes it into a dirty joke. And I've found that the more that I watch that show, it's natural for me to want to make that same joke. Not because I'm trying to be filthy, but just because it's so natural to take that joke and just make, make it silly. But then I read this, and Paul says, don't even let that be named among you. And I read that, and I'm like, I'm called 
to carry the gospel and to shepherd those around me, and I still struggle with the natural sin in my own heart just because I'm trying to make a silly joke. And what's more important, making a joke or living a life of thanksgiving for what God has done for me? And I share that because I, I have not reached a point in my life where I can say, I have arrived. I am completely pure and holy, and I've reached that level. And I hope that I never think that I've reached that level in my life. This side of redemption, there is no moment where you can say, I'm, I'm good. I'm as holy as I can be on earth. This side of glory, you will struggle with sin and filthiness and foolish talk. And Paul says, exchange those things for thanksgiving. Moving on in verse 5, for you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God or in the kingdom of Christ and God. And when you first read that, that's a very terrifying statement of, wait, 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 I, I struggle with those things. And Paul says that no one who, who does those things can claim an inheritance from God. But he's not talking about the believer who struggles and is seeking redemption and is seeking holiness, he's talking about the believer that is still actively pursuing that unrepentant lifestyle. Because you cannot call yourself a believer in Christ and continue to live an unrepentant sin. The standard of God's holiness is to turn from your sin. To say, that's who I was, and my flesh still wants to go there, but God is making me into something new. But for those who cling to their unrepentant sin, Paul says that there is no inheritance for those people. He goes on to say, Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Let no one deceive you with empty words. There's this repeated theme throughout Christian history, and it's still just as prevalent today. The people that say, well, you've been forgiven, so just keep doing whatever you want, and you're good. And they say it much more eloquently than that, because if someone just gave you that explanation, you're like, no, that sounds horrible. But there's always been this, this thought that, well, if your sins are covered... If you've been forgiven, just go ahead and do whatever you want and, and you're good to go. And 
And there are people who teach, actively teach, that you can be a Christian without changing your lifestyle, that you can be a Christian without repentance. And Paul is saying those are empty words. In fact, the word for empty is, is vanity. As in the book of Ecclesiastes, that everything is vanity, that everything is just an emptiness that does not give life. And these words are playing to the sinful desires of your flesh. And Paul says, don't live in that way. Because the unrepentant will not find an inheritance in the Lord. And he says, but instead, you've been called to walk in the light. You were in darkness, but now you walk in the light. And for me, one of the first things that pops into my mind is uh, not just DC Talks in the light, but uh, the passage from, and now that's going to be stuck in your head if you grew up listening to DC Talk, but in 1 Peter chapter 2, in verses 9-12, through 12, Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession." that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That you have been called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And so you have to ask, what are the dark areas that your heart and your mind go to? Because that's part of the natural sinful flesh. To pretend that they are not there is to cheapen the grace of God. But Paul challenges you to bring those dark, or those dark areas into the light. In fact, he says in, in verses 11-14, through 14, to take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. To bring the darkness of your own sinfulness and bring it into the light to expose it to that which is good and pure and true. To take those areas of your heart and your mind out of the dark and into the light. And there are some people that try to argue, well, darkness and light are two sides of the same coin that you need to have darkness in order to have light. But in reality, darkness is not the opposite of light. Darkness is the absence of of light. In darkness, there's fear and death and destruction 
and sinfulness. Whenever you hear darkness mentioned throughout Scripture, that it's associated with impurity, uncleanliness, death. And Paul is saying, bring your darkness and expose it in the light. Confess your sins to seek accountability from the brothers and sisters that are around you. I have to ask you, what is your darkness? Please don't tell me right now. I, that would be terrifying and pure chaos. But, but to, to focus and, and even remember, what is the darkness that your flesh goes to? And I will give you this encouragement that you are not alone. Every person in this room is a broken, sinful person hopefully seeking after the redemption found in the light of Christ. You are not alone in your sin and in your struggle. Expose your darkness to the light. In 1 John chapter 1, John writes, if we confess our sins, He, being Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Bring your darkness into the light. Because life, the Christian... See, see what you did? Now we're in darkness. No, but, but the Christian life is not just this fluffy life of live, laugh, love and rainbows and unicorns and, and smiley emojis. But the Christian life is a life of humility and repentance. There's a vulnerability to following Christ with other believers. The Christian life is about being known by other broken people who need forgiveness just as much as you do. I think if there are any definition of what a church is, a physical body of the church, that it is a place where broken, sinful people can be known and find forgiveness. But it doesn't happen by accident. And so that's why Paul continues and challenges believers to be intentional. Because it, it's not enough just to imitate, and it's more than avoiding impurity, but to pursue intentionality. In verse 15, he writes, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. In fact, in the original Greek where it says making the best use of the time, it can also be translated redeeming the time. That there's a sense of this time is there how are, not, how are you not just going to use it, but how are you going to use it in a better way, a more glorious way, a redempted way? Recently, I started, uh, I started rereading a, a book because my, my father-in-law and I are reading through it together, but it's a book titled Resilient Ministry. Uh, for those of you that enjoy reading, it's written by Bob Burns, Tasha Chapman, and Donald Guthrie. 
but it's a book about doing ministry while still caring for your own spiritual and emotional needs. To not pursue ministry to the point of burnout, but to care for yourself as you're caring for others. And there are five key areas that the book speaks to of spiritual formation, self-care, emotional and cultural intelligence, marriage and family, and leadership and management. And I read this book several years ago, but as I'm rereading it, the word that keeps popping into my head as I'm reading this is the word intentional. Because as I'm reading this book again, it, there's just this nagging reminder, am I, I know these things and I could say that these are good and should be done, but am I active in pursuing them? Am I being intentional? Am I intentional in my own spiritual growth and nourishment? Because it would be easy as, as a high extrovert and someone who loves teaching, it would be easy for me to step up here in my own strength and pretend that I have it all together. But the Gospel calls me to be pursuing my own spiritual growth as I continue to, to teach and to preach and proclaim the Gospel. Am I intentional with my relationships with people around me and the culture that I live in? Am I intentional with the way that I love and lead my own family? Am I intentional in the way that I shepherd those that I work with? And that's a challenge to me because it's easy to just pretend that everything is fine and just keep going. But there's the call to be intentional. Make the best use of the time that I have been given. And it reminds me of the Shema uh, from Deuteronomy 6, the, 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 the prayer for God's people that begins with, uh, what, um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. And so there's, uh, but the Shema goes on, and, and part of the, this prayer for God's people is that you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes, which he has commanded you. That there's an intentionality to diligently keep the things that the Lord has taught. Jesus himself says in John chapter 14, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. That does not happen by accident. It is a focused intentionality on pursuing what God has taught and commanded. And so I want to challenge you to examine your own life and the way that you walk. Not just the things that you say, but the very actions that you partake of. Are you redeeming the time that you have been given? Paul goes on in verse 18, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. That it's, it's not just drinking, that's what he's written there, but there's uh, a, a giving away of yourself and even your very mind to substances that consume and even alter the way that you think. Instead of in overindulging in things that numb the mind, 
and it's an overindulgence. And instead of taking these things to the point where you are no longer thinking as you properly should, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And when you do that, he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. That when you're filled with the Spirit, when you're filled of the things of God instead of the things of this world that do not give life, being filled with the Holy Spirit naturally leads to a joyous communication that it's singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That communication itself is a song of praise between believers. That when we come together, I don't know if you've, that if you pay attention to the structure of our very worship service, but the, the songs that we sing, even this morning, are built around psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We, we've, we're singing songs that have been part of the church body for generations because we're called to communicate in a language of praise. And Paul says in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That it's kind of an attitude check. And I'll confess, especially this weekend, I did not do a great job of this. And my exhaustion, the way that I even communicated with my wife and my children, that in my exhaustion, my heart was not naturally to a point of praise, but that I, I wanted what I wanted, and if I didn't get that, that I was, I was snapping at my wife and at my children. And I confess that in my weakness to say that this is an attitude check for me. That our hearts and our lives should be a position of thankfulness and gratitude. Is your thought life and the things that you say, are, they, are you constantly saying, well, if only this were different? Or I wish that I had this instead. Or do you say, thank God for what I've been given? What is your heart focused on? Discouragement over the things that you, that you perceive to be lacking? Or thankfulness over what you have been given? And then it, everything culminates builds together into the crescendo and, and explosion of verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. The Christian life is a life of submission. Not submission in a form of weakness, but submission in a denial of self-importance. That you're submitting to fellow believers, out of, out of love and concern for one another, that you're willing to say, you know what? My needs do not outrank yours. Let me submit and love you. Submitting to your spouse or to your family, to your parents, 
not as a, a weakness or avoiding conflict, but out of love for them and saying, my love for you is greater than my need to be right. Submitting to church leadership, to the leaders that God has put over the church body to say, you know what? I don't always need to get what I want. This is not a hill that I need to die on. I'm going to trust the leaders that God has put over this body and follow where they lead and shepherd. But most importantly, submitting to Christ as He submitted to the Father. And I think that's one of the most powerful, not one of, the most powerful submission. That God the Son submitted Himself to God the Father. That as you were trapped in your own sinfulness, that Jesus willingly submitted Himself to to God the Father. He submitted Himself to to flesh and frailty. That the God that spoke creation into existence put on a broken flesh That Jesus got sick. That Jesus got the cold. He submitted and put on weakness. And yet lived a sinless life in submission to the Word. He submitted to those who wrongly accused Him. That He submitted to the point of death. But in that submission... He overcame sinfulness and death and He rose again victorious. That sin and death were defeated. And that's what we rejoiced in last week with the Easter celebration that in His submission, He rose again victorious as a mighty King. And this is the submission that you are called to reflect. Because Jesus did it first as the prototype of submission. That Jesus did it first on your behalf to show you God's love. And so are you willing to submit? And so the challenge is to ask God to examine your heart. To ask Him to reveal what are the things that you are truly imitating. Are you following God? Are you imitating a false idol that will not satisfy and will not give life? Are you seeking purity? Or will you continue to walk in a darkness that leads to death? Are you going to live for your own selfish gain? Or will you redeem the time that has been given to you? Will you speak with thanksgiving And will you focus on the submission that Christ made on your behalf and to imitate Jesus by submitting your will to love others? Which will you choose today? Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for this time this morning that You have given for us to examine our own hearts. 
And it would be quick and easy to look at these things and to go into a legalistic checklist and say these are the things that I should and should not do. But instead, God, let us repent. Let us repent of of our own self-importance. Let us repent of our pride and our selfishness. And God, give us the strength to submit to You and to others, not trying to earn Your favor, but because we are thankful for what You did first. So God, speak to us this morning. Address the broken sinfulness of our flesh and continue to redeem us as we imitate You and Your holiness. We thank You for this time, Lord. And we pray all of this in the victorious name of Jesus. Amen.